Well, we're in the second Sunday of Advent of the Christmas season. And at Christmas time, I love watching the movies Scrooge <laughs> and uh, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. They feed my underlying desire to say, Bah humbug. To quote the Grinch, that's what it's all about, isn't it? That's what it is always about. Gifts, 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 gifts. You want to know what happens to your gifts? They come to me in your garbage. In your garbage. You see what I'm saying? In your garbage. I could hang myself with all the bad Christmas neckties I found in the dump. And the avarice? The avarice never ends. I want golf clubs. I want diamonds. I want a pony so I can ride it twice. Get bored and sell it to make glue. Look, I don't want to make waves, but this whole Christmas season is stupid, stupid, stupid. I've watched uh, Scrooge three times so far this year. Three different versions. The original one is great. I love it. But you see, uh, that's not the end of those stories, is it? It's not. Both end on a positive, even if only humanistic note. The spirit of giving and of love, the spirit of joy and of peace. That's how they end. They don't begin that way, but they end that way. The problem is, uh, I mean, the truth is, the fact of the incarnation should give us joy. It should bring peace. Um, It should help us to be a giving people. Those are good things. But that's not really what Christmas is about. It can be a wonderful time of year. The early church celebrated what they called the nativity. They didn't call it Christmas then. The nativity is about the birth of Jesus Christ. The word Christ means Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited prophet, the long-awaited priest, and the long-awaited king. He is the Savior who was born, suffered, crucifixion, was buried, was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is coming again. So Advent is not just about the first Advent. Advent is about the second Advent as well. Paul puts it this way. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We inherit the kingdom of God. However, because we are so enamored with all the tinsel, 
with all the gifts and with all the family warmth, we often fail to appreciate why Christ came. We're really secularized in our observance of Christmas, and we are so that we forget that Christ came for a purpose. John teaches us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Apostle Paul writes, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans chapter 5. Again, Paul expresses his faith when he wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who is in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not um, nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died in vain. Well, can you repeat Paul's confession of faith and embrace it as your own? Can you? If you can't, then Christmas will be just like any other secular holiday, but instead of fireworks, you will gaze at trees, tinsel, presents, and family. Good things, but those things are not the point. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, we find four details regarding the Messiah. Detail number one, the birth of the Messiah. Detail number two, the Messiah and the Holy Spirit. Detail number three, the righteousness of the Messiah. And detail number four, the everlasting peace of the Messiah. And before we consider those, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of Thy Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which You have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Detail number one, the birth of the Messiah. In the first verse of Isaiah chapter 11, we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The words stump, branch, and shoot are all metaphors directing our attention to the offspring of Jesse. The same image appears in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. And I quote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The same imagery appears verbatim in Jeremiah chapter 33 uh, that appears in, Jer- appears in Jeremiah chapter 33, 15, but in Zechariah, he offers the same perspective. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. 
For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. That phrase, the council of peace, is one that is picked up when they talk about covenant theology. But I want you to notice something. The man whose name is the branch. Branch. Not seer. What does that sound like? Not seer. And he shall be called a Nazarite. That's what I think that refers to. There's no statement like that except you derive it from the branch. And Paul refers to this in Romans 5.12. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse, even he who, come, who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him all the Gentiles will hope. The reference is to the Savior. The image of the stump appears as well in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah ch- chapter 6, you remember, the, you remember that? Isaiah says in the, 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 there's going to be a stump, right? And uh, there's going to be a remnant that returns and a tenth of them are going to be burned up again. So the, like the house of Israel is going to be reduced to nothing um, but a stump. Laying a, a stump on the ground where you just level it. And yet out of that will arise a branch, Right? And the stump, Isaiah says, is the holy seed. Now the phrase holy seed has been understood in three ways. One, it's a reference to Christ. Two, it's a reference to the Old Testament remnant coming out of Babylon. And three, it's a reference to the church which includes the remnant of the Jews. Now, we have to tie this in with the New Testament because James, you remember, says in Acts chapter 15, as he's as they're arguing about about reaching out to the Gentiles, uh, James quotes um, this passage and he says, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And that, the purpose, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. The remnant of mankind. It's true that it probably refers to the Jews. Or I would probably say it refers to the church. That holy seed is the church. It's a remnant understood by James. It refers to the people of God, whether Jew or Gentile, the remnant of mankind. But then it also must refer to the Messiah. Because Jesus is really the new Israel. We read the book of Matthew and it's presented in that way. Jesus is presented as the new Israel. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Um, he goes through the baptism in the Jordan. Uh, all of that is reminiscent of the Exodus. All that imagery, I mean, when Christ is baptizing, when John's baptizing in the Jordan, people are being baptized in the Jordan. What is the message to those people? That they need to repent 
and they need to put behind them their life of old and they need to walk in a new life. John's baptism in the Jordan is specifically in the Jordan because the people of Israel needed a new exodus. They'd been waiting for a new exodus since Babylon. Yes, a lot of them came back, but not all of them came back. And when they did come back, their heart wasn't in it. It never was in it. And so there needed to be a repentance. There needed to be a cutting off of the old. So yes, you need to, come, you need to be baptized. You need to repent. You know, because God is going to judge you. That was a message they didn't really like to hear. But that's what the baptism was all about. Well, Christ was baptized. Christ went into the wilderness for 40 days. Right? The imagery of 40 days, reminiscent of 40 years of temptation. Um, Christ uh, uh, then, uh, you know, goes... His whole life is like depicted as the new Israel because Jesus is the new Israel. So that then in Christ, both Jew and Gentile are now the new Israel. We're the new Israel, not because the church is some separate entity that God thought of and um, said, okay, this is the new group of people I'm going to work with. No, that's, that's that's not the way to think. The way to think is this, that Christ came and he substituted for the sins of his people, the sins of his people. And when he died, they died with him. His righteousness is his people's righteousness. So his life is our life. And so if we, if we can just understand the church as being in Christ, the new Israel, then, then the new Israel is Jesus and the church is the new Israel made up of Jew and Gentile because this is the new Israel of God. Not because we're a separate thing, but because we're in Christ. It's not like God sets aside the Jews and says, I'm not going to have anything to do with them anymore. No. He incorporates the believing ones into Christ. And so in Christ we are the new Israel. Why does all this history confront us at Christmas? Why do we not... Why do we have to learn these things? Well, we learn them so that we learn both of the holiness of God and the mercy of God. In the cross we see the mercy of God, the love of God, the righteousness of God. Because God is holy and just. He must punish sin. Sin is an insult to, an attack upon, a ridiculing of His holiness and justice. What's worse is that sin is rejection of God's love. Christ came into the world. His name means, uh, his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Well, why do we always have to hear this? Because we forget. We forget that when Adam and Eve sinned, they declared their hatred for God. It wasn't just that they ate an apple or whatever it was. Dr. Van Til believed it was a persimmon. I'm not even sure what a persimmon is. but Persimmon? Okay, well, that's what he believed it was. I don't know what it was. It was a forbidden fruit. And apples are good, so maybe that's what it was. But anyway, when they did that, they declared their hatred for God. 
Paul talks about that in Romans 1. Genesis 6 tells us that when God came to destroy the earth and everything in it, it why did He do it? Because, he, because the, the wickedness of man in his heart was there from, from, his, from his birth. From his man always devised wickedness in his heart. And what hap- how does Genesis describe it? I know we don't sometimes like to think about this, but Genesis describes God's looking upon the sin of mankind and it grieved him in his heart. Now we know what that's like and God reveals it to us that way so that we understand what, it, what, what that was like. It grieved him to his heart that the people, the humanity that he created hated him so much. It grieves him. Sin grieves God because our sin says, I don't love you. In fact, I hate you. I am going to do things my way. You know, mankind's best song is the hit single by Frank Sinatra. My way. Right? And now the end is near. I love this song. And so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll, say it. I'll, state, it. <clears throat> I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And oh, by the way, much more than this, I did it my way. That's the, that's the song, that's the chorus that, that people sing. My way. Not God's way. My way. So therefore out of his immeasurable love, God sent his son. Isaiah 7.14 teaches that God sent forth his son born of a virgin. The promised Savior is described in Isaiah 9. He says, for to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord will do this the zeal of the Lord will do this now just think about this Judah is facing the enemy Assyria right now the Assyrians are going to wipe out the northern tribe the northern 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 Israel they're going to wipe them out it hasn't happened yet but it's going to happen but Judah, they're going to come after Judah too. Um, there's a buffer. Ephraim and uh, the other nation, Manasseh, they're to the north. They're, they're kind of like a buffer to the Assyrians. Um, but once they get through, Judah is going to be there. And we read about that when they come to Hezekiah, right? The Assyrians come to Hezekiah and they're, going to, they're threatening him. Well, God's saying to them, you know, don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. It is going to happen with the Babylonians, but it's not going to happen with the Assyrians. God's protecting them. Remember, God says to Ahaz, ask for a sign, biggest heaven, whatever. And then he gives this prophecy that a virgin shall give birth to a, a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, when God says he's going to 
save his people, what is the image that he uses? The image of a child. The image of a child born of a virgin. Behold, a, a son is born to us. A child is, a child is given to us. God's going to have victory over the people of the enemies of Israel. He's going to have victory through a child? That's not how you fight a war. That's not how you defeat an enemy with a child, but that's God's way. When God defeats our enemy, our enemy isn't Muslims or Russia or China. They may be political enemies of the United States, but they're not, they're not our enemies. Our enemy is, is sin. Our enemy is the wicked one. How did God overcome the wicked one? He sent His Son into the world to die. Well, what then is Christmas about? What is one word you use to summarize the meaning and significance of Christmas? One word. I got this from Paul Tripp, by the way. How would you summarize Christmas? What word? One word. One word. How would you summarize it? Victory. What? Victory. Victory. Love. Love. Information? Incarnation. Incarnation. Joy. Birthday. Birthday. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, yeah. Okay. Those are the words. That's, they're fine. Nothing wrong with them. <laughs> Paul Tripp says, Jesus. If you want to summarize Christmas, mm-hmm. it's Jesus. Jesus is God's love for us. Jesus is God's grace. Love and grace are wrapped in a person and His name is Jesus. If you miss this, you miss Christmas. Celebrate all you want. If you miss Jesus, it doesn't matter what you do because you'll miss that which is central of central importance and is irreplaceable. You can't replace Jesus with trees and tinsel and gifts and lights. All those things that I actually enjoy, to tell you the truth. I love all those things. But without Jesus, nothing. They're here today, gone tomorrow. In fact, the Christmas tree goes up and then right after, right after New Year's sometime it's taken down and you throw it away. They take it to the dump and they chop it up into mulch. That's what they do. You know, they have a special day when they pick up your trees. They come by, grab them. You know, so you have it for one season. It's it's dead and then it's gone. And then you go on with the rest of your life like nothing ever happened. But it shouldn't be that way because Christmas is about Jesus. So when Christmas, the Advent season ends at Christmas, when when it ends, then it hasn't ended for us because now we're moving, we continue to move along in the story of the Incarnation. And so then there's the baptism of Jesus the presentation of Jesus. All of those things are important to us in terms of understanding who Christ is and how we are in Him. And that's the point. Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. Because He came to save us from our sins. Well, let's move on then to detail number two, the Messiah and the Holy Spirit. We see in um, Isaiah chapter 11, 
I got to go back there because I didn't go back. In chapter 11, verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now notice what Isaiah says about Messiah. First, he will have the Spirit of the Lord. Second, Isaiah describes that the spirit, the spirit as the spirit of wisdom, under, wisdom slash understanding, the spirit of counsel slash might, and the spirit of knowledge slash fear of the Lord. And third, he will be characterized as delighting in the fear of the Lord, something that the Holy Spirit works within all of us, and it worked in Christ. First of all, notice that the Messiah will have the spirit of the Lord. That's obvious, isn't it? But it's not as obvious when you're reading the Gospel accounts. For example, when John talks about it, he teaches us that the Word was in the beginning, right? He was with God and was God. After that, John informs us that Jesus, the Word who created all things, in fact, he says, not one thing that exists, exists apart from, from Jesus. But John tells us something else. He says in chapter 1, verse 31 to 34, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit. This is John the Baptist. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain... This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Notice what John states twice in those four verses. The Spirit descended and the Spirit remained. He says it twice. So there's some emphasis there. He wants us to know that this Spirit not only descended on him, that's true of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament too. The Spirit of God came upon Saul, right? But he didn't stay, he didn't stay that way. Um, even though Saul was transformed, the Spirit of God didn't say, David, when he sinned, what does he say? Do not take your Holy Spirit from me, right? Because there was this idea that the, you could have the Spirit be anointed as king and that kind of stuff, and then you could lose that power. Well, John says on this one, he descended, he remained. And the idea is that he stayed there. He didn't, uh, he didn't go. Therefore, John writes in, uh, later on, He who comes from heaven is above all. This is Jesus. He who bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. That's Jesus. He got the Spirit without measure. And then John says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. 
Now this is a warning to all of us. Don't leave here today without praying about John's words to you. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Search your own heart. Pray. I know that sounds like a sounds like you know. Um, I'm not. I, I don't want. I never. I don't like to give the idea that I'm a, that I'm an evangelical in the sense that I believe, you know, you pray to receive Christ. Though you can pray to God, and He, you can do that. It's just that there's not. A, I don't like to emphasize that we don't have an altar call. Though I believe that many people who are saved are saved because they went forward some one day and put their faith in Christ. I'm not going to deny the useful that God has used those kinds of things. Of course he has. My, my point to you today is that don't leave here until you can, you know, you think in your heart and your mind, you know, I really I trust in Christ. You you I, I'll tell you the truth. I I'm going to be honest with you now for myself. I pray that, you know, God I want to make sure that I'm trusting in Christ. Do I believe I am? Yes, I do. But I still there are days when I have doubts, those kinds of things. I like to make sure. Uh, how do I make sure? Well, I can only make sure through the Word of God and the Spirit of God working through that to work in me. And one of the means of grace is, that's never mentioned, but it is because the Bible says it is, one of the means of grace, how many means of grace are there? Prayers never mentioned. The word and the sacraments. The word, the sacraments. The word and the sacraments and discipline. Discipline. You know that in the, when everybody, I even asked somebody one time, why don't you ever talk about prayer? Nobody ever mentions that prayer is a means of grace, but Hebrews chapter four expressly says that it is. Yeah, it does. Let us therefore approach the throne with, with boldness, with confidence, there to receive grace, to help in time of need. Right? Prayer. The second thing Isaiah describes are some attributes of the Holy Spirit. He says uh, that the Spirit is the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. I want you to note those pairs. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. This pair refers primarily to to judgment and government. Um, That's what it refers to primarily. In the context of Isaiah, these attributes contrast with the king of Assyria. They also contrast with the people. Isaiah illustrates that in chapter 9 that was just read. The people thought they could rebuild what had been fallen. Let them tear it down. We'll just rebuild it. They'll break the bricks down. We'll just stick it back up again. And no reference at all to God. Total and complete arrogance. They were arrogant and trusted in their own wisdom and their own abilities to govern and plan for the future. That's what people do today. They think God is like them. They think they are wise, but they are fools. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses uh, 6 through 13. Uh, look at the relationship between wisdom and understanding. Paul's words echo those of Jeremiah's. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. 
Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. How does that reminiscent of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2? I mean 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The wisdom of men did not embrace or understand the wisdom of God. They couldn't embrace Christ because they couldn't understand the gospel. And they couldn't understand the gospel because the Spirit of God had not revealed it to them. He didn't open their hearts or their minds. They, well, wise men always boast in themselves. When Jesus was in the temple of the Jews of His day, He says, You know Me and you know where I come from, but I have come uh, not of My own accord. He who sent Me is true. Him you do not know. I know Him, for I came from Him, and He sent me. And then in the next chapter, Jesus says to them, uh, when they ask Him where His Father is, Jesus answers, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father. Reminiscent of what, what He said to Philip, right? To see me is to see the Father. You, you ask to see the Father. Well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Again, Jesus says in John 8, but you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say I, did not, I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him and I keep His words. There's always that seems to be there's always a, a reference there to knowing God and being obedient. In fact, Isaiah points that out. In Isaiah chapter 5, he says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Now, think about this for a minute. Listen to what Isaiah is saying. He's saying that people party, right? You have parties. You enjoy yourself. Everybody's happy. Everybody's doing their own thing. There's one thing lacking. They don't remember the Lord. Folks, look around. How often has the church, or how long has the church now, been guilty of celebrating Christmas with all the glitter and lights, you know, and all the pomp and circumstance, but they really have forgotten the Lord. Everybody's forgotten the Lord. That's why churches, when Christmas is on Sunday, even some of my dear friends that are pastors, they'll cancel Sunday service. Because after all, you can worship the Lord anytime, right? Let's cancel Sunday service and let the people stay home for Christmas with their families because Christmas is a family day and we'll have service on Saturday night. I don't agree with that. I think that's a wrong view. But that's what happens. And it's happened in this city 
more, it's happened in this city every time Christmas is on Sunday. Big, large churches stop having, they don't have worship service on Sunday. Smaller churches with, with, with some reformed leanings or reformed, reformed doctrines, they don't have churches on Sunday. Why? Well, because Christmas is a family day and, you know, and you can worship God any day of the week, so we're going to worship on Saturday night. Well, God will judge that in the end. I just want to draw your attention to what Jesus says. You can have a great time and you can leave the Lord out of it. You can enjoy Christmas and never think about one time about the work of our Lord's hands. Isaiah completes his picture of the Messiah by saying that he delights in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is one of those things that we hear about a lot. Um, we talk about it a lot. Does it does it mean fear? Like, oh, you know, and does it mean fear like reverence? And those things are probably all true in one circumstance or another, right? Um, it's proper to have a trembling fear of the Lord um, when that's a proper time. Um, it's proper to have a reverence and awe for God at the proper time. But that's not always what we're talking about when we talk about the fear of the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord and obedience are um, closely related. We might say that the one is a mirror image of the other. When you hold the fear of the Lord before a mirror, the image you see is one of obedience. Because the fear of the Lord is, is something that says, you know what? God said this. God said this, and I'm going to obey Him. Why? Because He's God. Were you afraid of Him? No, but I have a healthy, I have a healthy respect for Him. I, I, I fear Him in the sense that I don't want to offend Him. It's kind of like, though not exactly, but it's kind of like a child obeying their parent because they're afraid. Not that they're afraid of punishment or things like that, but they're, they fear that if they do what their parent is forbidden, their parent will be offended and hurt because disobedience reflects a lack of love. And I think that's what we have to understand, at least in one sense, of what fear of the Lord is. It's being obedient. Jesus said this, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, and that term lifted up is a, is a word that the Jews understood and we should understand as being the crucifixion. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as my Father taught me. And he who sent me, that is the Father, is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are what? Pleasing to him. That's the fear of the Lord. Paul says to the Philippians, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have the mind in you among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now notice that. He does what, he, what God pleases him. His obedience was a, was a humility. He did what the Father wanted. He humbled himself and was obedient. So what does God want you to do this Advent season? What is the point that I am trying to make as we go through this is that the season must have Jesus as the apex of all that we do. We can celebrate and celebrate without Him and not even think about it. And the idea is to celebrate only have Him be the center of our celebration. How do we do that? I'm, I'm not sure. Do you read a Bible verse before you open presents? Or do you read a Bible verse here and there? I don't, I don't think that's it. I think it's more of just being conscious of the fact that this day that we set aside as a day to remember the nativity, rather than calling it Christmas, we'll call it the nativity, on this day that we remember the nativity of our Lord, that we think about the fact that he became man, that the gifts that we may have, if there are any gift guys give gifts, some people do, some people don't, but the gifts that we have, the gifts that we give really should be reflective of the fact that we have been given a greater gift. We have been given the greatest gift that could ever be given. Jesus our Lord. Well, the third detail is a description of the righteousness of the Messiah. He shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Righteousness is the absolute which comes from God. Faithfulness faithfulness is that which holds to the course to be followed that God sets forth. The the image of the belt uh, speaks of readiness for action. The Messiah is always ready to fulfill the will of the Father and to do so faithfully. That's what's, that's what's in view here. Um, the writer of Hebrews says that Christ had to be made like us in every respect, that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest of the service of God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why did he do that? He did that to act faithfully toward his Father. Um, Christ was faithful. Moses was faithful in the house. Christ is faithful over the house. It's the difference between the servant and the architect. Christ is described as faithful. That's what he was in everything that he did. I do those things that please my Father and I always do them. Even the cross, especially the cross. Do you think it was easy for Christ to suffer and die? No. You go to Gethsemane and when he prays, he prays three times, three times. 
the reason we're given that picture is because it's so, it's so emphatic. Three times he prayed to the Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Three times. The, 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 the prayer was so intense that, it, that his sweat was like drops of blood. Now, there's a debate whether it was real drops of blood or whether the, the sweat just was pouring for him like drops of blood. I'm not going to go down that trail. What I'm telling you is that whatever happened in Gethsemane, however, it's described as agony. That's how, there's no other way to describe it. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, He was agonizing over the fact that He would die. Not that He would die on the cross. Not that He would be crucified with all of its pain. and Not that He would be whipped and tortured. He prayed because He who knew no sin became sin offering or sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When Jesus hung on the cross... He became what God hated. He became what God would destroy. And as a man, and he's praying in his hum- as a human, going through that, suffering the wrath of God, that was hard for him. It was difficult for him. And yet, he was faithful. There's no other way to describe it. He was faithful. He was righteous and he was faithful. Because of that, we have this great privilege of approaching the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He who promised is faithful. So when we pray, we pray with confidence, right? That's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4. We approach the throne of grace, we approach the throne in confidence. Boldly, in fact, is what he says. Because there we go for grace to help in time of need. The faithful Savior gave to us his gave for us his life. Well then fourth, I want you to notice the everlasting peace of the Messiah in the last part of um, Isaiah chapter eleven. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Look, just think of that imagery. Um, the leopard and the lamb shall lie down 
with the young goat. Um, yesterday, I think it was on Facebook or someplace anyway, I saw a picture and it was about a cat. A stray cat that got into the zoo and um, climbed into the cage. I think it was of a lynx. And they just laid there together. You know, played the lynx and the, and the cat. I looked at that and I thought, wow, isn't that amazing? This, this cat, a house cat, stray, gets in this cage and it's laying next to a lynx. The lynx could kill him and eat him. In fact, that's, his, that's, what his, that's, what, that's what he normally would do. But not this time. And I saw this lynx and this cat lying together. I've seen pictures of dogs and lions lying together because they grew up from the time they were pups and cubs and they learned to love one another and play with one another, a dog and a wolf. You know, they met in, on a walk and the, the wolf would normally kill the dog. But what happened? Nothing. The wolf and the dog, you know, cuddled up. What is that? What is, what is, why do we have those kinds of, they're glimpses, are they not? I mean, that's how I see them. I see them as just glimpses of, of the peace of the Messiah. The glimpse that, my gosh, one day, one day I'll, we'll actually see that. One day we'll see lions with, with sheep and with cattle and we'll see them frolicking in the fields. We'll see all of this happening and now we just catch little glimpses of it, glimpses of it here and there and it should, should cause a rejoicing. We should say, wow, that's what it's going to be like only, only a thousand times better. Why? Because that's how God created the world to be. And what He's saying when He says that the Messiah is going to bring this is that in the new creation, in the new heavens, in the earth, new earth, that's what it will be like. Because that's what God created things to be. In the first creation, God, there were animals there, living together, walking with each other. Man wasn't afraid of the beast, and the beast wasn't afraid of man. You know, people talk about Tyrannosaurus Rex and all that. How did they live? And all. I don't know. But what I do know is this. That before the fall of man, they all frolicked together in the Garden of Eden. Now, some of them lived outside, but mankind was going to subdue them. He was going to exercise dominion over them. And there was supposed to be, the garden was God's garden temple. And it was to be expanded. Um, it was to be expanded to cover the whole earth. Well, it Man sinned and it brought, it brought condemnation on everything and the creation was affected. And so later on, after the fall, or after the flood, God says, from now on, all the animals are going to be afraid of you. There's going to be, a, there's enmity. Guess what? One day, we'll all realize that those images that we saw on the internet of a dog and a wolf and a cat and a lion and a dog and a lion. Those images that we see, little tastes of, little glimpses of, are going to be the reality all over the earth. And Mara will be able to play over the hole or the nest of an asp and she won't be harmed. Now some people say, well that's not exactly how it's going to be. Uh, this is just figurative language. Well, you, figurative, you know... <clears throat> Figurative language represents something, right? So this represents peace. I understand that. This represents total and complete peace. But so how are you going to have it unless it's like this, right? 
unless these figures that tell us about peace really are this way, then, then you really don't have peace. God's telling us that what He intended for creation is going to come a pass, to pass. Man and creation will no longer be at odds. Man and woman will no longer be at odds. Man against man will no longer be at odds. There will be no more war because people will know not just about God, but they will know Him personally and they will worship Him. They will live at peace with God and therefore with one another. John tells us in Revelation, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride and adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That's what it's going to be like. And so what, what, what is our response? What is our response? Advent? Yes. But the second advent. The first advent always leads us to the second advent. So as we're celebrating Christmas, what should we say? What should, what should we say while we're celebrating Christmas with one another? What's one word you can think of? It's one word in English. What, what one word could you think of to, to celebrate as or to say as you're celebrating Christmas? Maranatha. Marathanon. Marathana. It's two words, but it's really one. In... What does that mean? Come, quickly, Lord Jesus. Come. Come. That's what we should be saying. Lord, you came. We're looking for you to come. Maranatha. Christmas should be a time of Maranatha singing, right? Rejoicing in the Lord. Saying, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly and establish that peace that you promise in your word. Well then, in conclusion, Isaiah uh, chapter 11 verses 1 to 9, we find four details regarding Messiah. One, the birth of the Messiah. Two, the Messiah and the Holy Spirit. Three, the righteousness of the Messiah. And four, the everlasting peace of the Messiah. But the last point is the one that I think needs emphasis. Maranatha. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you what you teach us through your word that it does. It isn't just a knowledge. In a, I mean, it is knowledge, but it's knowledge about you. But as we come to know you through your word, we come to know you personally. We come to know what you, what you are and who you are. We come to see your grace and your, and your mercy toward not just us, but to all people. Your mercy is shown even on people who are not your people. 
Every time we see some war cease in this world, it's a work of your grace. You have kept people from doing things as, as, as devastatingly as they could. Every time we see someone spared um, from some kind of uh, malady, that's a work of your grace. As we look around the world and we see the poor, and we see that there are many organizations, not just one, there, there, are, there are many organizations that, that seek to relieve the poor. We thank you, God, because that's a manifestation of your grace. Of uh, the man who started a, uh, was an actor and started a band and and took his band um, all over uh, all over the world to uh, army uh, military bases and performed and the proceeds of all that went to <coughs> went to a fund that he had started with some other people for the sole purpose of relieving veterans of their of their of their problems disabled veterans they've built some 50,000 homes for veterans um, I look at that and I say God that's your grace you are so merciful but the greatest expression of your grace is in the nativity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ his life his death on the cross and his promise that he will return. Help us to think those things as we celebrate this nativity season. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we come now to the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it's a